Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Communist Party of China's United Front and what they are doing to try to influence Canadians and those in other countries. And is what Brian Adams said helping any of this discussion? When do we open up the border between the United States and Canada? Is it safe to do so? And don't forget to toast your favorite nurse. It is National Nursing Week. It is all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, we have had Sam Cooper on the show several times, uh, a great global news investigative reporter who uh, does a lot of work out west, uh, specifically in regard to uh, China-Canada relations and uh, various aspects of how this has affected uh, or how the how the Communist Party of China has affected uh, business in Canada. And uh, an interesting story he has now uh, about a person named Anastasia Lin. Uh, the breakthrough came shortly after her speech at Oxford University in early February. The 30, uh, the 30-year-old Chinese-Canadian actress uh, had been speaking for years about the Chinese Communist Party worldwide influence operations and its human rights abuses. Uh, she's never received much vocal support from her community, but says until her widely shared speech struck a nerve amidst amongst Beijing's coronavirus response, uh, this is uh, is coming to light. So to talk about all of this, Sam Cooper is with us from Global News, Global News investigative uh, reporter, and uh, the story is on the website now. Chinese Canadians suffering in silence as China's united front reaches into Canada. Sam, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sam, we've talked uh, to you uh, last week in regard to the United Front. Before we get started into this particular story, again, do a quick recap of what the United Front is. It's a worldwide influence operation which is directed from very high levels of China's Communist Party. It's been there as long as the party has, but it has vastly increased its resources uh, under the new president. Uh, He's not new anymore, but the president, Xi Jinping, And uh, the concerns I've been looking at is that uh, this influence network is is targeted strategically in Canada and and really almost all nations outside China, where China is seeking influence, resources, and and really uh, to assert control over all Chinese ancestry citizens that are now living in other countries. So the very concerning aspect uh, of this Part of the story is that the, these groups, uh, through student groups, business associations, they seek to influence Canadian politicians, but they also seek to control uh, communities that have been uh, living in Canada for a long time and, and really want nothing to do with uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, directions from far away. And so uh, Ms. Lin, uh, I found her a very compelling witness because I, her life has been shaped by the fact that at a, at a relatively young age, she started speaking about human rights and influence uh, by the, the party all over the world. And uh, the result was she was barred from coming into China to contest for a beauty pageant she was due to, uh, to appear in. And uh, she says that Chinese secret police targeted her father and told him if uh, if Ms. Lin didn't stop speaking up from Canada, then her family in China would be uh, persecuted, as as happened in the Cultural Revolution back in the 60s and 70s. 
So she really brought me into the Chinese Canadian community, as did others. And their message was, uh, we want support from the rest of Canada to speak up. This is about the freedom of people in China, outside China, not just Chinese Canadians. And they said that uh, really Ottawa needs needs to recognize this threat and give support because uh, it, it's a growing threat and there's fear. There's fear in the community. Uh, two voices here. So Chinese Canadians and like every immigrant uh, family came over here from another land to start their life here. We all know what that story's like. Lots of his parents, grandparents have done the same thing. And then there's Chinese nationals who are in Canada but are loyal to China. How do these two groups get along? Is there is it an adversary relationship? Is it is it cooperative? Do they speak to each other? Well, that that is a great question, and it's the question that uh, academics that I spoke to and and community experts said all of Canada needs to be asking more. And it's not just two groups or one group in the Chinese-Canadian diaspora community. There are many, uh, many uh, veins and circles of thought, uh, experts from within the community told me. And there's really a, a, a strong conflict, they say now, over the handling of the pandemic. They say that uh, there's, as they describe it, I, I think it's fair to say, there's a, a silent majority that are very upset with the party's handling of the pandemic. And uh, that, that the, the anger against the party goes far beyond uh, the handling of the pandemic and into these influence operations we're speaking of. But certainly, uh, uh, I'm told from within the community, there is a, there is a, a relatively significant number of, uh, of people that are, do feel great loyalty to uh, mainland China. And uh, I don't think anyone is criticizing them just for that. The criticism comes in the uh, people would describe it as uh, carrots and sticks from Beijing that are used to uh, encourage that uh, loyalty within some groups to Beijing. And that loyalty certainly is a threat to Canada because uh, we're talking about espionage networks, influence networks, and we're talking about really... uh, I have found threats against Canadians of Chinese descent and others. I have always wondered, and many have, why more Chinese Canadians do not speak up against this. But you're you're saying that the reason that a lot of Chinese Canadians don't speak up against these Chinese nationals are because of their worried about retaliation for any family members that they may have back in China. Absolutely. Uh, uh, a number of people have told me that that this is not some made-up fear. They they speak of family members that get visits from Chinese secret police, where threats are made. Uh, your relative needs to be quiet, or else. And that, of course, comes back to the relative in in Canada or other countries. And so people from the the community tell me that there are those those examples of threats, and then there's a self-censorship that occurs uh, within Canada's society by people that don't even want to go there and speak up because the, the examples are out there of, uh, of people that have suffered threats. And uh, the consequences go beyond simply uh, uh, warnings. We, we know that there are activists, persons of all kind in China, that, uh, that get put in jail without any due process.
China is obviously uh, 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 taking advantage of North America's human rights and branding this as racism. How does this dis- uh, discussion, how do we have this discussion and not get lost in political correctness and not get lost in racism? Because China is trying to paste, uh, paint this as anybody who brings up these concerns that this is racism. Certainly, that that is a, a big and important question, I believe, right now. A, a couple thoughts spring to mind. Some experts told me that, and I, I'll use a little bit of direct and strong language here. They say, what is really racism? Is, is racism if a foreign government says that just because you are the ethnicity that originated in mainland China, you owe your allegiance to mainland China, even though you've been living in another free and open society for, for maybe decades? Uh, critics would say that in itself is racism. And so how does the broad Canadian society, uh, our, our, our multicultural society, talk about this? I think uh, if, if I'm asked to give my opinion, we need to be open and careful. And uh, the experts told me we need more Chinese-Canadian community voices in all kinds of media, given the support to speak frankly. Uh, and if 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 uh, items uh, cause concern to that community, we all should hear about them and we should discuss them just as uh, if any community is uh, feels insulted. So I believe uh, more dialogue from more people is always a good thing. I've always said on this show, this isn't about race. It's not about any of this. It's about democracy versus the Communist Party of China or the Chinese Communist Party. Um, why are we so quick to defend China instead of asking these important questions that you are asking? Well, that, that, that is something you've noticed by now that uh, I, I'm following the, you know, China's impact on the world. And I think that we, uh, many reasonable people would agree that it's an important question when we look at what is this crisis right now worldwide. The, the people I talked to from within the community said there is blame to the world, uh, you know, health outcomes because of suppression of information in China. So it, it's an important question. If we are going to trade with another country and have any sort of relationship, we need to be able to frankly bring up uh, concerns as they would with us. But if you ask me why that's not happening enough in Canada, I, I do believe I've been told that, you know, these United Front influence networks, I'm not alleging uh, necessarily espionage, but I'm, what I'm saying is that there's a lot of political donations going on. And certainly, I believe there are people in Canadian society in powerful uh, positions that have been targets of influence, have they been unduly influenced to the uh, extent where CSIS or RCMP need to be involved? I think it would be foolish if we, we didn't believe that some cases of influence have occurred. Uh, what Brian Adams uh, tweeted today, does that help or hurt this discussion? I just think that uh, if I can be uh, you know, direct, that's just a kind of a stupid comment that it only it, it just uh, riles up bad, uh, bad faith and discussion on all sides. If I can just, you know, as if we were sitting here uh, in, in a cafe talking and look, that it's just we don't need that at all. That's all I really have to say about that. Well said. All right. Uh, your column in regard to uh, uh, the, the Anastasia Lynn, how much of an impact is she having breaking this story? I 
you know, interviewing, I interviewed her extensively several times, and uh, I was struck uh, a couple of things. It seemed to me that having her, her family harassed and targeted steeled her will. She was already on a certain path, and she's the type of person uh, I found that will only, uh, if she believes in something and she's attacked for it, will only become stronger in that belief. Uh, I, I sense that she's a growing leader, and uh, she she seems to she's been given a position by a think tank in Ottawa where she's being asked to to provide her thoughts on how Canada should engage with China, and I find her to be one of the most uh, you know engaging and fresh voices out there right now on the subject. So um, we'll see what's in her future. Will we listen? I'll be listening, and I'll be writing, and I'm I'll, I'm looking for you know, more information from people in the community. Let me tell you, since my first story ran, I've had a, a lot of comments and response. The engagement is good. And uh, I've had some tips of very concerning allegations as well from the people I'm looking at. And believe me, I'll continue to dig into them. Uh, more great uh, investigative reporting from Sam Cooper, Global News out west uh, in B.C. Chinese Canadians suffering in silence as, can- as China's united front reaches into Canada is the current column, which you can find on our website. Sam, again, fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. We were, uh, man, oh man, you know, it's very, very difficult to have this intelligent discussion while people are screaming racism. Uh, Donald Trump and now, unfortunately, Brian Adams have not uh, helped that discussion in any way. Uh, Brian Adams is facing backlash after posting on Instagram about his canceled uh, gigs due to the pandemic. I believe this was in uh, London. Uh, he's talking about his gigs in London. Uh, he says, quote, tonight we were supposed to be at the beginning of a, uh, a tenacity of gigs at Royal Albert Hall, but thanks to some uh, blank, bad-eating, wet-market, animal-selling, virus-making, uh, greedy bastards, the whole world is on hold, then goes on to promote his uh, uh, being him being a vegetarian and such. And he has since apologized for all of this. But again, uh, the sad part is, is uh, this plays right into China's message, which is anytime they are being held to account and we ask questions, they scream racism. And this, again, does not help the discussion. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, we talked yesterday on how we never talk about each, uh, talk to each other anymore because of all this COVID-19 stuff. And blammo, look at this. Here you are two days in a row. Blamo. I, I love the, the intro by your wife. I really like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Every member of the family's done one, Alyssa. I'm yes. impressed. Yes. I yes. your son was on. Yep, yep. I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah. He's he's Now my son's doing the intros every day at 12 noon. He, he, he writes a new intro every day and uh, brings me on Ed McMahon style. It's pretty funny. All right. Your thoughts on what Brian Adams said. Again, this irritates me because uh, I'm very critical of of the Chinese Communist Party and how we have become so dependent on them. Uh, China will use racism as a way to neutralize and avoid uh, the allegations against them. And unfortunately, a statement from Brian Adams doesn't help this. And I, I'm sure it's just a matter of time before China points to him and says, look what your son is saying. What are your thoughts on what's transpired? You know, people are losing their collective minds on Twitter lately. And, and I don't know whether Mercury's in retrograde or something's in retrograde because people are just 
you know, forgetting when they get dressed in the morning to put their filter in, the one that goes between their brain and their mouth, to prevent them from saying what they're actually thinking. And maybe it's because we've all been at home for a number of weeks. Maybe it's because we're trying to break out. Maybe it's because we're trying to blame somebody else, you know, for the state that we're in. I don't know what it is. But, you know, you can really unpack this issue two ways, Scott. First of all, there's the Communist Party of, of China who we know is, you know, creating cartoons and really, really simplistic um, conduits for their messaging so that they're, they're, you know, people living in the Republic of China um, know the key messages in terms of how this virus supposedly started, how it didn't start, and who's to blame. So there's that. Then there's, you know, people of Asian descent that are just being the target of racist um, ravings who maybe living in Europe, maybe living in North America, and are not members of the Communist Party, but visually we identify them as Asian so that they are also being targeted. So, you know, you, you start, you know, I think we have to dial back 24 hours before um, not even Brian Adams' tweet to President Trump's press conference when he was asked yep. by the CBS reporter, you know, you're looking at testing as a global competition. And right away, you know, listen, you can draw really, I'm speculating here, but you could draw a line from the question she asked, who as an Asian American and who she visually represented to President Trump and the way that he responded to her. Well, don't ask me, ask China, he said, ask them. And then she doubled down and said, well, why are you directing that at me? So there's that. To which he then called the press conference off. Right, and then he realized, well, at least he was smart enough to walk out. Like normally, uh, maybe two months ago, I don't think he would have walked out. But, you know, that's the type of racism that we're talking to. You know, just people walking in the streets who visually represent themselves and and through their heritage represent themselves as being from China, who are being targeted as sort of collateral um, as collateral for, you know, what's going on in the world. And and that's the part that's wrong, Scott. I mean, you know, the fact that the Communist Party of China is now taking this and trying to create a halo effect of these, of the narrative of racism is, you know, listen, this is just what they're going to do. This is just another way of controlling and perpetuating their message. And that part I don't agree with. But the fact of the matter is, is that somebody, a 60-year-old man who has been in the public eye since he was in his 20s, you know, back in the summer of 69, you know and I know where we were when we first heard that song, and has been, uh, has done countless media interviews, has to realize that he has a platform, he has an audience, and that what he says has intent and purpose. So you can walk back all of this stuff, and a lot of people are walking back their initial ravings, but really, take a beat. If you're angry that you can't um, fulfill your tenancy at Royal Albert Hall to sing your songs, there is a way better way to express your disappointment than going down some sort of racist narrative trope. Hashtag rant over. Go ahead. How... (laughs) How or does this prevent us from holding China to account? Does this prevent us from getting to the bottom of this? So instead of holding China to account, anytime we raise our hand and say, excuse me, what about this? Hey, you're being a racist. Well, I don't think that every question is being answered that way. And I think that there are, and I hope, Scott, that there are mechanisms in place that are looking for you know, the exact source without all this sort of um, 
schadenfreude where we're trying mm-hmm. to obscure the truth. So I think that, you know, anybody can hold anybody to account. I think it's got to be done through the right mechanisms, and it just can't be done because somebody has a bee in their bonnet and has to go around blaming. Now, listen, I mean, you know, the narrative that we first received about the bat that was bitten by this particular wild reptile that they sell at the wet markets in China, I mean, okay, if that's true, then that's true. Um, Then what else is true? Is it true that China was downplaying uh, the spread of the virus? Absolutely possible. So, you know, there are things that we do have to hold the Chinese government responsible for that Mm -hmm. they're not owning up to and will likely never own up to. So there's a big difference between blaming the Chinese government and then just blaming somebody who was Chinese. Again, I've said several times, this is not about the Chinese people. It's not about it's not about race. This is about democracy versus communism. Uh, What does this do for Brian Adams and then sort of use the well, it's all about veganism. uh, I'm a vegetarian sort of pulling in that angle. Uh, What does this do for both those causes? I got to tell you, you know, when you're brainstorming with your buddies after you've screwed up and somebody says blame it on veganism, maybe it sounds like Mm. a good idea at the time. You know what? Listen, if you're going to apologize, just apologize. Don't give some lame excuse that, oh, because I'm a vegan, that, you know, that that's the reason I went off on a rant. I mean, you know, so he had some other posts or some other comments in an interview where he said, the reason I haven't turned gray is because I'm vegan. So, you know, vegan for good, vegan for bad. If you're going to apologize, just apologize. What does this mean in terms of his career? Is it over? No. Is it a blip? Yes. Are there some people who are going to still be ticked off? Yes. But the interesting thing that it's really started, and this has started on Twitter, is this, who is the real Canadian music icon? Is it Brian Adams or is it Corey Hart? So if you looked on Twitter yesterday or last night and you just, you know, tapped on the search function, you would have seen uh, number one trending was Brian Adams and about number four was Corey Hart. And really, I didn't look at the Corey Hart trending and thinking, okay, why is he trending? But Liz said, you know, when she called me to do this interview, that they really sort of pitted one against the other about who should really be the Canadian music icon. Is that a distraction, a deviation? Well, it's an organic deviation. You know, it's not one that he made himself. It's certainly one that has just come up from people who are on Twitter saying, you know, in sort of a a counterbalance or a way to uh, voice their opinion. But I have so how will so go ahead, go ahead. I have to say that if you've spent any time on Twitter, I was spending time on it sort of earlier in the pandemic days, but now it is really just a platform for uh, just the ugliness of people, and it is sometimes. So tough to read the tweets. Even you know, even my wife has commented on that that the local Facebook uh, Facebook pages have just become a shaming platform. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Alyssa. How are Canadians viewing this? Will this make Canadians more apologetic and push us back farther into our shell? More apologetic than we already are? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that we it makes us more empathetic and maybe more sympathetic. But, you know, it's interesting. There was another, there's been some other sort of disagreements about, um, you know, stuff that has been said on Twitter about various things. And when you go into the comments, there's a bit of blaming, but there's also more forgiveness than I've actually ever seen before. 
So mm. it's more like, okay, they screwed up. What? You've never screwed up in your life and you hold this person to greater account than you do yourself? Stop it. Everybody deserves another chance. Everybody deserves to apologize and move on. So interestingly, though I say that, you know, Twitter is a cesspool, and I still think it is most of the time, it does seem that people are having a more empathetic reaction to, okay, this was wrong. Um, I no longer respect this person, i.e. Brian Adams, the way I did. Um, but let's just move on. So people tend, tend to express their anger. And also, Scott, the people who do express their anger, yes, some of them are Brian Adams fans, and some of them are just sitting there waiting to yell about something. So will we be a kinder, gentler society coming out of COVID-19 or the second those doors swing open and there's a, vaccine, a, vac- a vaccination found, forget it. It's back to normal, every man for himself. You know, that's a really interesting thought. And I think that, you know, these weeks, um, either spending alone or in company of family at home, you, I, I, I do see, if I'm looking at social platforms, in some cases in response to some things, a kinder, a kinder and gentler uh, narrative coming out. More about, you know, forgive and forget. Now, one can only hope that we retain some of this and uh, it continues to permeate our society in a good way. Um, I think that, you know, when we talk about post-vaccine, I really do think it's, you know, back to pedal to the metal, and will everything go away, go back to the way it was before? I don't think exactly. We will have a new normal, but I would hope that this new normal does include a bit of a kinder, gentler society. Well said. Alyssa Freeman has been with us. Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. And be well. I hope we talk again soon, Scott. We will. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Deputy Prime Minister said that Canada, this was yesterday, and the U.S. are working on plans to deal with the inevitable increase in cross-border traffic as the economies slowly reopen, uh, which is odd considering the borders are closed at this time and with the United States uh, still, uh, they're getting a handle on it, I guess, in some states, depends uh, which way you look at this. Uh, I don't think there's any appetite in Canada right now to open up the borders to anything other than non-essential uh, traffic, which is, of course, goods and services that go back and forth and people who work in one place or the other. Uh, to talk about all of this and when we may see the borders reopen, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yes, I am, Scott, and thank you. So what are the discussions the United States and Canada would be having right now in regards to the border, especially considering where the two countries are and they seem to be at different places? You're right, and that's one of the, I think, conversations. We have a, uh, we've broken the curve, I think is that phrase, flattened the curve, I guess. Uh, we have far fewer infections, far fewer fatalities, even when you normalize the data. Normalize means, kind of, you know, uh, do it proportionately for the different sized populations. Our, the, the normal metric is mortality per 100,000 of population, and our, which controls for different sizes. We're much lower uh, than the states. This may shock people, just and then we'll get on to the question. The U.S. is still not in the top five uh, on a per 100,000 of deaths. People see the absolute deaths. Of course, the United States is the third largest country in the world. But in terms of death per 100,000, it's still well below Italy, well below France, well below UK, although in absolute numbers, there's a very significant number. And as you pointed out, there are some hotspots. And that's going to be, I think, at the top of the, the conversation. Um, and, and, and that will immediately flow to questions that are being discussed in the airline industry. 
should there be any kind of test, uh, for example, coming across the border? Should they impose a temperature test? Uh, should they impose a health care question type of uh, a test? You know, have you had any fever? Do you feel sick? You know, that kind of thing. And I'm sure that's being discussed. Um, and then the next question that they'll also be discussing in these conversations is, are we going to broaden it out to quasi-essential uh, services? There's been stories in the papers in southern Ontario of uh, the woman, I think, is a nurse in the hospital on one side. You can't see her fiancé on the other side, Detroit-Windsor. Well, th- that's not tourism. Uh, you know, that that's <laughs> they're both working yeah. in the other city, if I understood the story right. But the point is, are we going to allow that kind of behavior uh, to, to now cross the border? that kind of activity crossing the border. Um, I think, Scott, that the pure pleasure tourism uh, is going to be continue to be prohibited, uh, at least, I'm sure, until June. And that's where, you know, I drive down to Prescott, which is the nearest town from Ottawa. It's an hour away. And there's a nice big bridge going over to the U.S. side. I've driven it many times. Are they going, and, and people go down for the day, for day trips. Are they going to allow me to drive down to Prescott, get on that bridge and cross over the border? Don't think so. Not yet. I think they'll allow, as I said, people working on both sides to recommence. A uh, story of the guy in, uh, stranded in Nova Scotia and his wife is in South Carolina. And he just went home to see the family and was going back to his wife and got caught at the border and said, you can't go back to the States. And uh, so though that, I think they'll relax on those kinds of uh, uh, border crossings. But I don't think they're going to relax on the full, full on. I'm just going there for the day or I'm going there for fun or for entertainment. Uh, Here's what the prime minister had to say this morning on the topic of the U.S.-Canada border. Preventing transmission from outside of Canada into Canada once we have controlled the spread within Canada will be an essential part of ensuring that we don't. Uh, fall back into a second wave that could be as serious as this uh, this wave we're going through or even more so. So we're going to be very, very careful about uh, reopening any international travel, including the United States, uh, before uh, we feel that it is time. Uh, that's the Prime Minister earlier this morning at his media conference. Ian, uh, Ian Lee is with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Is there pressure on Canada to reopen the border in the United States, uh, with the United States, from the U.S.? I don't think so. Um, I've crossed that border in my lifetime. I um, I estimate, and this is just, I just sort of ballparked it, you know, um, maybe four or 500 times, literally. I mean, I'm an hour from, from, I mean, as a kid, when we used to go there for picnics, day picnics on Sundays, my father and mother would drive us across the border. We were, in those days, 35 minutes away. Um, and the second point I want to make, that statement was all very nice, and I don't challenge what he said, but it implied that there's large numbers of people from the United States trying to cross the border into Canada. Well, anyone who's actually crossed the border will know there's many, many, many more cars lined up on the Canadian side going to the U.S. than there are on the U.S. side coming to Canada any day of the week. So I don't think there's a lot of pressure on there. I think the pressure is coming from the Canadian side. Uh, it, does it matter? I mean, when you think about it, uh, the traffic is open to essential uh, goods and services anyway. We've been keeping trade and commerce going on between the borders during all of this. How important is it that we open it the rest of the way? How much, because uh, other than uh, the essential services, isn't this just tourism? Isn't this just plain and simple socializing? Um, that's my view. Um, and that's, again, as someone who's crossed the border many, many times. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, I, I think so long as uh, most of our businesses are closed down and the essential stuff is going across the border anyways, trade is going across the border now. It never got shut down. But so long as most people are still at home, socially isolating, yes, a few stores have opened, Home Depot's open, Rona, you know, that sort of thing. But most of the stores are still closed. And so, quite bluntly, there's no real reason to open the border because the only reason you'd be opening it is for people like me to say, gee, I feel like going down for a day trip down to uh, Alexandria Bay, a famous little beautiful little town uh, at the mouth of the uh, St. Lawrence and Lake Ontario. I mean, it's tourism. It's travel. It's entertainment. And, of course, the entertainment, uh, the tourism and accommodation industry closed down. I mean, if you get down to the States, most of the hotels, will be, I'm guessing, will be closed. And the restaurants and the bars will be closed. So you're going down for what? So my point being that I don't, I think the pressure, if there is pressure, is coming from Canadians, not Americans. And secondly, I can't believe the pressure is that great. There'll be some pressure, probably more along the line of when are you going to open the border so I can make some plans for the summer? Not I want to go there tomorrow morning and why haven't you opened it? Uh, I think there will be pressure. A lot of Canadians take holidays in the States. I'm one of them. And uh, so I think that they're probably getting pressure uh, to um, from Canadians. Uh, to when they're going to open the border, because I, I will predict confidently, and I don't think this is, I'm, I don't normally make predictions, Scott, but I think this is a fairly safe prediction. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are going to get, be getting on airplanes anytime soon. Yeah. And certainly every CEO of the major airlines are saying that, American, Canadian, European. So what does that mean? We're all going to stay at home forever? No. It means that this summer you're going to see an awful lot of uh, road trips. You're going to see a lot of Canadians taking the car. Now, some will be going across Canada or parts of Canada, and some will be going to the States because it is so close for most Canadians. That famous statistic that 90% of Canadians live within 150 kilometers of the American border means that it's, you know, Southern Ontario, they're just a stone's throw from Buffalo. You know, if you're in Vancouver, mm-hmm. you're just a stone's throw from, from Seattle. So I, I think there'll be Canadians wanting to go to the States this summer for their two or three weeks summer vacation because they're not going to be going on an airplane. Does testing have to be more frequent before we will see borders open? I uh, was talking the other day to some people about the airline industry, but my comments are just, they're just as appropriate to your question. Uh, I don't think you're going to see a full return to quote normality. I'm talking now travel, travel, whether in a car across a border or in an airplane um, uh, or trains, uh, we're not going to see a return to normality until there's some kind of testing that gives confidence that you're not going to be in a train or a plane uh, filled with coronavirus people, or even with one person that has it. And the American, it's one step removed at the border, Americans and Canadian government will be wanting to have some sort of testing to address Mr. Trudeau's issue that he just raised. That is to say, you can open the border if you can have mandatory testing. And it, there are stories that you can have a five-minute test. Um, t- Trump demonstrated it in one of his press conferences. I'm not saying they're cheap. And we may see that for the next, for see, until there's a vaccine, that they put uh, testing at the border and you, the, the tourist or the, the border crosser, <laughs> uh, has to pay for it. And uh, if you want to go across the border, and if you say, I don't want to pay that, well, then fine, you don't cross the border. I, I do think it's inevitable in the short run, so long as we have not got a, uh, a, a vi- vaccine for the virus, people on both sides are going to say, 
We do not want anybody coming in. We don't want to import a fresh round of virus. And the best way to deal with that is to have some kind of mandatory testing that is reliable at ferreting out those, especially those who are asymptomatic, that are showing absolutely no condition whatsoever, no no signs, no symptoms. And so they're going to want something. I don't know. And I'm not a doctor. Whether it's a blood test or whether it's, a, I don't know, some kind of a COVID test, I don't know. But I, I can't see uh, large numbers of people getting on airplanes. I'm one of them. I'm not going to get on an airplane until I know that they can certify to me that everybody else on the plane that day does not is not infected. Uh, I have too much at risk. And, uh, and I think the same logic applies to the border. And so we may see travel for the foreseeable future because we don't know how soon it is to get a virus, uh, excuse me, a vaccine. We may never have a successful vaccine um, in the same sense that the flu vaccine every year changes. And they say it's only 40 percent effective because half the time they're guessing at the flu bug for the following year and then it mutates or it, cha- or it wasn't the one that they that they guessed was going to be the one. And so we may be in a situation like that. And if that's the case, you're going to need some kind of testing. Uh, as I said, whether it's a blood test, whether it's a, uh, a, a thing up your nostril test or whatever, I'm not a doctor, I don't deal with this, but some kind of testing to assure both sides and decision makers uh, and airlines for that matter and customers that you are not bringing fresh new virus, uh, people contaminated with the virus into the country. Ian, you were talking about the airline industry uh, on the news last night. There's some disturbing images of just a packed airline, uh, everybody yeah. all masked up and, and shoulder to yeah. shoulder. Uh, many had thought or said, and, and I'm sure this is just anecdotal, where the center seat would be left open to allow for a little bit more space. Uh, obviously not the case uh, in, in this flight. Uh, where do you see this going? Because, again, yeah. um, are people going to demand that center seat open? And we certainly know yeah. what that will do to the price of tickets. I've read uh, in the last, I don't know, 10 days or so, two weeks, just a ton of articles, really good articles, too, by the way, some by uh, people inside the aviation industry at IATA, the International Air Transport Association, some in ICAO, which is the International Civilian Avionics Association, some by retired pilots. I mean, there's just and some by business analysts. And there's, uh, I think, pretty close to unanimous agreement that the old days of cheap travel, huge choices, multiple planes flying every day, you know, 90% full, uh, those days are gone for the foreseeable future if ever they come back. Uh, that's the first point. Uh, the second point, I've seen uh, artist renditions where they reverse the middle seat and it's pointing backward, if you know what I mean, and they have plexiglass on both sides. And that was very clever. I said, oh, that's interesting. That, that is interesting. Um, but um, every forecast I've read, including current CEOs of airlines like Ravanescu Air Canada, the CEO of Lufthansa, everyone agrees that we are not going back for, I've seen two years, a couple of four reliable forecasts, meaning they're very reputable individuals, say five years uh, before we go back to, quote, normal. I've actually read forecasts that say we're never going back to normal. I find that a bit strong because so many people enjoy, not the flying, but enjoy going to distant uh, locations. And while we can drive, and I've got the stats, they're very clear, up to 400 kilometers, cars have always out uh, competed airlines anyways. Far more trips under 400 kilometers are made by car in Canada and the States. This is hard data uh, from the statistical agencies. Um, short haul uh, uh, airplanes don't compete. But turn the question around. Well, wait a minute. I want to fly across the ocean to Europe. Well, you can't swim and you can't drive 
And most people don't want to seven, take seven days on a boat, and as I like to tell my students, where you're in the toilet for seven days throwing up because the waves are so violent. Mm. And I've actually come across when I was six years old with my parents, and I remember it, and everybody was in the toilet. My, uh, mother's, my mother tells the same story. It's a true story. It's a true story. Anybody who yeah, romanticizes, yeah. Uh, the you know, we came across on a Cunard ship uh, back from, uh, my father was in the U- Europe in the base, uh, Canadian NATO base, and yeah. we came back in 1960 on the ship, and I got my sea legs after about two or three days, and I was running around trying to get people to play with me, and my mother was sick as a dog. In the long run, I do think travel will return just as it did after 9-11, but it's not coming back in the next 12, 24, 36 months. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, talking about the Canada-U.S. border. There has been some chatter uh, on eventually, and I guess there should be chatter because eventually it will open. Uh, However, uh, those on the Canadian side, uh, not really anxious at this point uh, to, uh, to, to have that happen. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'd say the last eight, nine, ten weeks have been nursing week here uh, in Canada and all over the world. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing how this uh, pandemic has redirected and refocused our attention on healthcare, frontline workers, uh, specifically those in long-term care uh, and seniors' homes. I want to introduce you now to a nurse who's uh, works at the COVID-19 unit at St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, Laura Nielsen is a nurse educator at St. Joseph's Hospital and is with us now. Laura, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So what is your role as nurse educator at St. Joseph's? Um, So my main role, uh, we have new hires that come in, and the nurse educator is in in charge of uh, doing hospital orientation with them, making sure all the new grads are up to par on their nursing skills. Um, We also take a very big role in... um, a lot of communication work behind the scenes, committee work, that type of thing. Um, but recently, our role has changed quite drastically, <laughs> and it's heavily focused on COVID-19 and the pandemic. I can imagine what it must be like if you're a recent graduate and this is your first year in this industry. It would be something. Absolutely. And hospital orientation is completely different right now. Um, We used to have large groups congregate into conference rooms where we would teach them skills. And everyone's really had to develop uh, new strategies to take on this orientation process. And we're doing all of our orientation via Zoom, online, virtually. Um, so it's been quite the challenge for them, but I have to say the new hires that have we've recruited in the past couple of months have been fantastic, and they're ready to help out at this time. What kind of person becomes a nurse? What does it take to be a great nurse? That's a great question. Um, honestly, I feel like empathy is something that the nurse um, a nurse really has to feel. Um, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, we really do have to have a caring approach, and there's lots of nursing theories out there about um, a caring nurse and how important the caring theory is, um, and that's at the whole picture, not just for your patient, your colleagues, their loved ones, and we're kind of seeing this caring aspect go into COVID-19 with how we're treating our patients and their loved ones because it's a totally new approach. How has uh, society's perception changed of this industry just in the last couple of months? 
Oh, gosh, that's a great question. So actually, there's been an article that's been out there um, that I've seen on social media. Um, I think it was put out by the star called, um, it was, I think it was stated, uh, suddenly I'm not just a nurse. And the woman who is interviewed in the article, um, you know, we've had a lot of um, things going on in social media. I remember the whole stethoscope scandal, the doctor's stethoscope scandal, and just a nurse. And now we see during this pandemic that we're skipping lines, we're getting food sent to us, um, and everything has changed. And I feel like nurses have a new appreciation in the public. Um, and another thing that this article that she um, stated was our jobs are still the same. We still come in risk for things before COVID-19. There was, you know, um, MRSA, C. diff. There's lots of different things that we can come in contact with. And this is just a new element. And now it's out there in the media because it's affecting everyone in the world, worldwide. So I think uh, the danger of our job has really come to light to the public. Uh, obviously, with the pandemic, a lot more attention has been uh, drawn towards healthcare in general, and certainly those frontline workers. Are there, is there a shortage of uh, of nursing staff uh, across the country? Is something like this? Will something like this help that? Are all of a sudden is all of a sudden this exposing people to a career they perhaps maybe didn't think about before? Um. Yeah, I think that, I, well, from my experience, I've never experienced a nursing shortage. I know the nurses, the colleagues that I work with who have started their career around 15 years ago, a lot of them had gone to the United States to start their career off. So I don't think in my generation of the nurses starting since graduation, there's been much of a nursing shortage. Um, I think it can definitely bring light to someone who's thinking about getting into nursing, what those the danger is, um, but not only infectious disease that we can come in contact with, but also violent patients. There's so many added elements to the dangers of uh, nursing. And I'm not sure if that would change someone's perspective of wanting to get into the career, but um, it can definitely give light of the dangers of entering the nursing career. What do you hope uh, this this pandemic brings attention to in the healthcare system? How do you hope this will change things moving forward? Um, I really hope that the public supports nurses when we hear things um, that are happening in the community. I've gone through um, periods where there's been nursing layoffs and that type of thing. Um, I think it, I really hope that it gives a new respect and kind of holds the essential service up against other essential services such as firefighters, police officers, and shows the importance of our role. You know, I've often said uh, post 9-11, the firefighters were the heroes. I think it's the healthcare workers, frontline workers that are uh, getting that nod this time out. Uh, Laura Nielsen's been with us, nurse educator, St. Joseph's Hospital, uh, helping out the new recruits that are coming in. Laura, thanks so much for your time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well, and please uh, pass along to anyone in, in this industry how uh, thankful and supportive we are uh, for taking care of us during uh, this pandemic. Thank you, Laura. Good luck moving forward. I definitely will. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. All right. Uh, you might remember prior to COVID-19, 
and all of the uh, life-changing experiences that we've been through in the last couple of months, there was uh, a series of blockades that were going on across the country, across uh, Canada, in regard to uh, the Wet'suwet'en uh, First Nations and a coastal, gink, uh, coastal gas link pipeline. Uh, all of the elected representatives in the communities along the route had approved all of this as per uh, government regulation, environmental approvals and stuff. All the dot, uh, the I's have been dotted, the T's have been crossed, and the elected officials uh, approved it and such. And uh, then a couple of hereditary chiefs spoke up against this. The next thing you know, uh, the pipeline grinds to a halt, and there are protests right the way across the country. Uh, what ended up happening is uh, Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett went out there, and everything was quite private, and all of a sudden they said that they had come up to some sort of agreement, but this had nothing to do with the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline and had to do with uh, rights, land rights, and such uh, in regard to the whole process. Uh, now uh, this memorandum, I guess, has come out to move forward. Uh, it appears that the elected leadership of several First Nations are upset by all of this in the sense that, uh, and they're calling for the resignation of Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett in a statement released Monday, uh, four elected Wet'suwet'en chiefs say the process by which the province, the federal government, and the nation's hereditary leaders arrived at the proposed memorandum of understanding on Wet'suwet'en rights is unacceptable. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Ellis Ross, MLA for Skeena, British Columbia, elected official there, and is with us now. Ellis, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Not too bad here, Scott. How about you? I'm not too bad. Uh, give us a little bit of an update there as far as the indig- our Indigenous communities. How are they faring during this COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, well, I'm in an Indigenous community. i uh, born and raised here. Still, uh, still am here. And really, it's, it's really kind of affecting our, our traditions, our rituals. Our, uh, like we just recently had death, and we're not allowing any people into our community, outsiders, because of our vulnerable uh, elder mm. population. And it's causing quite the hardships for us. Well, we hope that uh, your community does well along with the rest across the country as we try to get through this. Let's talk about this meeting. There was a lot of hoopla in and around this with uh, Minister Carolyn Bennett way back when, when this all started. Many were concerned then. Uh, What are your concerns now with what has happened? Uh, You know what? Number one, this has gone beyond a pipeline discussion. Uh, This is, in my opinion... There isn't even a uh, discussion about title or jurisdiction, for that matter. Not until we address the fundamental question of democracy. And I can't believe we have to bring this topic up in Canada, of all places, where people all around the world are fighting and dying and protesting for the right to choose their own people and to be part of a process. Canada is actually going the opposite direction. And this is not even the first example in BC we've had here. In fact, uh, the provincial government here in B.C. as well as Canada did the exact same thing to non-natives up in the peace region of B.C. when they actually put together a caribou action plan that excluded all the non-natives. This, this is, this, when you talk about transparency, accountability, uh, democracy, uh, we're, we're going the opposite direction. It's, it just amazes me that this is being allowed to happen in Canada. Uh, how surprised are you that the government is is paying attention to the hereditary chiefs in this issue and not their own elected uh, band council government? Uh, what is the role of the hereditary chiefs here? 
nobody seems to know what the role of Herdar Chiefs is. In fact, when you're talking about Aboriginal rights and title, uh, both levels of government, the BC provincial government and the federal government, failed to tell Canadians that Aboriginal rights and title was already addressed for the pipeline in the last 15 years for two LNG projects in BC. And that was done through a parallel process to the environmental assessment process for these LNG projects. The government's not telling anybody that. And that's why when people talk about these five resurgent communities that actually had a lot of opportunity to engage, in which they did through their elected leadership, they engaged, they accepted it. Uh, both levels of government refused to tell the Canadians that this is really how they adjust rights and titles in the last 15 years. So th- this is actually quite a mess. It's chaos. And uh, I, I think the principles of democracy are being basically ignored here. So what has been accomplished by this memorandum between the hereditary chiefs and the government? What, what, what's, what's the goal here? That's a really good question. Because when you're talking about title, uh, title and jurisdiction is one of the most complicated, most expensive topics you can talk about in Aboriginal country. In fact, there's only two processes that I'm aware of that, that can actually accomplish this. One is through the courts, which is actually uh, how Chilcotin did it. Uh, they're the only ones that have defined title in B.C. They went through the courts over, what, 10 years, cost them $20 million or so. And the other one to define title is through the B.C. treaty process. Now, that hasn't been very successful in B.C. There's only a handful of First Nations that actually uh, signed on to the treaty, pro- treaty in B.C. So the government is actually proposing now, in a really broad, general way, to address title in a governmental, political fashion, as opposed to courts or uh uh, a standard process, like a BC treaty process. And nobody obviously knows what that is at this point. Why is government not being transparent on this, especially excluding uh, elected representatives like yourself? What's in it for them? What, what, what's the advantage here? That, that's a good question. But, but, you know, they're not only excluding uh, Aboriginal elected leadership, they're excluding non-Aboriginal elected leadership. So when you're talking about title, uh, you have the potential to affect uh, all kinds of uh, land designations. And that's what title does. So they're going to have to have a discussion about uh, private lands. They're going to have to have a discussion about highways, right-of-ways for hydros. They're going to have to have a discussion about uh, uh, municipal lands. There's a whole range of topics that come up when you're talking about title. So not only are they excluding uh, non-native governments, uh, uh, native elected governments, they're excluding elected governments. And it's done quite secretly uh, during the COVID crisis. And, you know, I'm not surprised that the elected leadership, the Wet'suwet'en, are angry about it because they were excluded. What I am surprised about is every other level of government has not voiced up in saying, okay, what about us? How is it going to affect our membership and our citizens? So what is the status of that pipeline now? Uh, the status basically is that the work has been continuing. So it is uh, moving forward. It is moving forward. Uh, but uh, this MOU's got nothing to do with the pipeline. And so as far as I know, the opposition to the pipeline is still there. The fundraising is still there to actually uh, build up the opposition. In fact, during this shutdown uh, for the COVID virus, people were actually advertising on social media that they were still continuing to go into the protest site from Vancouver and Victoria during the lockdown. They were going into these territories 
to actually man the, the blockade sites. Where do you think this discussion is going next, Alice? What what next? Well, you know, an MOU is not is it, an MOU is really not definitive. It's not really a hard line legal document uh, per se. Uh, it's you can't really the next step up would have been a memorandum of agreement, uh, and then you've got the the more formal agreements. This is a complicated discussion because you're talking about five separate Wet'suwet'en communities. Yeah. And then you've got the neighboring First Nation communities around them that will have to be aware of what, what they're talking about in terms of title and land, land jurisdiction. And then at some point, you're going to have to talk to all the non-native levels of government to talk about what this actually means in terms of lawmaking, jurisdiction, policy, land, uh, rights. Uh, this is a huge topic to be having politically. Huge. And it's probably one of the first times uh, that I can remember having it in B.C., uh, Alice, let me ask you this before I let you go, just to clarify all of this. Why is it, as an elected official, your community and uh, every Indigenous community along this route is for this pipeline? Why do Indigenous communities want these pipelines, want these projects? Number one, because it was a very, very thorough, detailed, uh, exhausting process to actually get all the information in place and to understand the actual nature of what this project was all about the pros and the cons. Number two, it was because uh, Aboriginal and Title, uh, especially the Haida Court case of 2004, actually included First Nations at the table for the first time in our history and allowed us to negotiate with government and with proponents in terms of inclusion. And that's why we have a fully permitted pipeline. What that actually means for us, especially a band like mine, I'm not going to speak in any other band, we've got a generation of kids now that are actually going out getting a job, getting a mortgage, buying their own house, buying their own car. They have no they have no inclination to actually depend on government. They, they don't want to depend on council. They are truly being independent. And now, for the first time that I can see, we are finally starting to put a stop to a cycle of abuse, of, of poverty. I mean, we've talked about it for 40, 50 years. Now those politicians talking about that, stopping the cycle, you know, building a better future. Well, that was just talk. Well, we just did it. And now I think every First Nation elected leader is trying to fight for what we've already accomplished because the next generation matters. Well said. Ellis Ross has been with us, MLA for Skeena, and, of course, his community, he and uh, other elected officials uh, want this to benefit their community. Ellis, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You be well during this pandemic. You too. Thanks a lot, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.